And as you're being seated, if you would please turn in your copies of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, as we move into this next chapter of this incredible letter that Paul has written for us. We are going to read verses 1 through 10 today. There's going to be a special focus here on these first three verses. I was a little ambitious with picking out how much I thought I could cover. Um, It won't be as long as it was through Luke, I promise. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, as he skeptical looks around. Paul begins in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. And the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go once more in prayer to God and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this stark reminder of who we once were and how the world still is. We ask that this would not be an occasion for pride, but an occasion for praise as we look into how you have delivered us from such a state. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What we read here in this passage is extremely countercultural. And in fact, it always has been. If you were to go around and ask people if they consider themselves to be good people, Unless they have heard the answer to that question from a Christian perspective before, they will almost undoubtedly tell you that, yes, they do consider themselves to be good people. Yeah, sure, they make mistakes here and there. You know, we're only human, of course, but overall, we think that we're good people. But I'll bet you, if you were to ask them, do you consider yourself so insensitive to the things of God and goodness itself that you would say you are dead to God? Further, would you say that you are in lockstep with the rest of the world following after Satan and are, in fact, quite happy to do so? Would you say that your condition is so desperate that it will take a literal act of God to get you to stop living this way? I defy you to find somebody who will answer yes to that question, who hasn't studied this passage. But that's 
the perspective that Paul gives to us. Not just Paul, because he's writing under the inspiration of Scripture. This is God's word to us of what our natural condition is as a human being. It agrees with the rest of Scripture. We saw it all the way back in Psalm 14. Here we see it again in Ephesians chapter 2. This has been the consistent witness of Scripture that humanity has got a pretty big problem. That we are dead in our sin. But we have to look at this. We have to realize this. And this has been one of the deadliest lies in our culture is to say that I'm okay, you're okay. You need some self-esteem to get through this world. That's not the point or the promise of this scripture. And in fact, the more we realize the depth of the truth of these first three verses, the grace of God that is to come will seem all that more amazing to us. We will see it for what it actually is. So, this passage neatly splits into two points that we're going to look at today. We're only going to get to the first one. But uh, the, the first point is that we all started life dead. We all started life dead. And then number two is that God brings the dead to new life, which we'll look and see how he does that next time. But let's start out with we all started life dead. Now, if we're going to take a look at this passage, it's helpful for us to remember the context of where we are. So this letter has been written to the church there at Ephesus. This is Paul writing a very practical letter, divides in half. The first three chapters are about the doctrine that Paul wants the church to know. And on the basis of that doctrinal foundation, he gives us chapters four through six, which will give us what we're supposed to do with it. What difference is this supposed to make in our lives? This isn't just philosophical fun facts for us to keep in our head, but this is supposed to make a difference in how we live. Life-changing truths in one through three and a life-changing result in four through six. And as we saw here in chapter one, the beginning of that foundation, answering the question, who is God and what has he done? And we saw all three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all working together for our salvation. We saw the Father choosing whom he's going to elect. So no one falls through the cracks in his salvation story. We see Jesus sacrificing himself for our sins because that's what our sins call for, is the death penalty. And Jesus pays that. And then we see the Holy Spirit working to apply that salvation to us. From beginning to end, it's God. And then as we saw last week, that God has decided to use this remarkable power that he has, crushing all of his enemies under his feet, and is giving that gift of victory to us, the church. This is amazing news. And it becomes even more amazing when the question now moves from who is God to who am I? What is man? Who are the people that have been showered with these blessings? We tend to think when we see somebody who has been given lots of awards, we tend to be very impressed by them. If you walk into somebody's house, they have all these trophies and ribbons and stuff all over the wall. You think, wow, that person's impressive. They've done a lot to get all of these rewards. And we might be tempted to think that's the same thing when we look at chapter 1. Wow, who must we be for God to shower us with all these blessings and rewards and graces? And then we get to verse 1. 
And you, you, the objects of all this wonderful grace and love, were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's rather deflating, isn't it? Here, when he talks about that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, what does that mean? This isn't what we see in Romans 6, 11, where it talks about that we need to be dead to sin. That's not what's here. We are dead in our sin. What this is talking about is that we are completely insensitive to the things of God. So much so that we could be described as dead. If you've ever seen a dead person, they don't respond to anything. You can shout, you can poke them, nothing happens. They're completely insensitive to how the rest of the world is continuing to go. And that's the picture that Paul paints for us here. It's a good reminder. Because we have been, are living in the world where we can shape how we're supposed to look to the rest of the world. This has always been possible with cosmetics and clothes, but it's even more so now with the rise of the internet. We can have whole digital lives that we have curated and angled to look exactly perfect. Get those profile pictures with the nice filters to make our skin look better. Take the pictures at the best angle so our jaw looks like we have one. Or if all of those fails, you can do like what I did and have my wife draw you a profile picture. You can shape reality that's around us. And the problem is, is we can begin to believe our own press. We've put up all of these pictures of how our life is, and we can forget that there is actually more behind the scenes. That's where Paul comes in to remind us. By the way, the you that's here, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, this is what's called a second-person plural. People outside the South don't have a second-person plural, so if we could translate this, it would be, and y'all were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is a universal truth. This isn't just the people here in Ephesus. This is everybody. I like what one commentator had phrased that this is both universal and personal. It's you all, but it's also you, me. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Later on, we're going to see Paul himself is included in that when he gets to we. But this is what he is saying, that you were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, we can tend to look at these things as being synonymous, because they are, it's trespasses and sins. What Paul is doing is he is heaping on these other words for us to really communicate to us of what our state is. We are dead in sin, sin, and more sin, is where we are. And then look at what we get in verse 2. It says, in which you, or y'all, it's the plural again, in which you once walked. Now the metaphor is changing. We're dead, but we're also walking. What he is talking about here is uses walking in the same way that we do. We say that someone talks the talk, but they don't walk the walk. When we use the word walk, it's about living, how one conducts themselves in their lives. And this is what he's talking about, that we are walking in our sin. But where are we walking to? Notice how he describes this. That we're following something. We're following the course of this world. In lockstep with the rest of how the planet works. There's a famous commencement address that was given a number of years ago. A man is telling a story about two young fish who are swimming through the ocean. 
And an older fish passes by and says, hello, guys, how's the water? And he keeps on swimming, and the other two fish keep right on going. And eventually, one of them looks to the other and says, what's water? It's the recognition that this is something that they live and operate and move in all the time. It's not special anymore. Water's water. It's how we get through the world. It's the same thing here with sin. Not only are we dead in sin, but so is everybody else. And when we live our lives, our lives don't look any different than anybody else's does. Everybody else is just walking along. Ever been in a place that you've never been before? And you're trying to figure out, well, what's the direction you're supposed to go? You just see this crowd moving, so you just assume, ah, okay, that must be the right way to go. You just jump in the crowd, you don't even ask, you don't even question it. Just following along with where everybody else. As my father used to say, can a million flies be wrong? Following after whatever it is that the crowd is doing. This is a pretty sad picture. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're not walking alone. Everybody else is doing the same thing. But notice who we're following. The world is following somebody too. It says they're following the prince of the power of the air. This is a reference to Satan. Notice he's the prince, not the king. We know who the king is, and that's Jesus. But there is the prince of the power of the air. Air here is, they had thought in the ancient world that the atmosphere between the earth and the moon, this was the area of spirits, where all the spirits were floating and hovering around. So here Paul is importing that and is, is giving us this vision here of Satan leading the rest of spiritual forces here in the world. So this is pretty sad. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're following after the rest of the crowd, the world, as they follow Satan, the spirit who's still at work, by the way. This isn't something that was in the past. This is something that is still operating here in the sons of disobedience. It's a great phrase. They use the word son to mean a really close and intimate relationship. This is a really intimate relationship with disobedience. And then it goes on here in verse 3. And it says, among whom we all once lived. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here, what Paul tells us, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, we're following after the world, and we're more than happy to do it. Not only is that the direction that the crowd is going, that's where our bodies want to take us anyway. We want what we want. There are passions that need to be satisfied. Desires that we want to see fulfilled. Nobody else is resisting us. In fact, there's somebody up at the front leading us in this direction. It's a pretty pretty pitiable state of mind. Of here we are. And then it says, and we're by nature children of wrath. It's of natural consequence that we are headed for wrath. Whose wrath? God's. So here's the picture. Bunch of dead men walking towards the furnace, following after Satan and loving every minute of it. That's going to require some grace to get off that sort of train, isn't it? You need a miracle. 
And we've tried in ways of thinking in our societies to try to figure out who's to blame for this. We used to think, way back with John Locke, that everybody was born neutral and that it was society that corrupts the innocent ones that are born and puts us onto this path against our otherwise natural will. But notice since he says that it's by nature we were children of wrath. We can see this, and if you'll turn with me, to Psalm 51. Psalm 51.5, actually. Here, this is David's confession of his own sin. Here, this is, we believe, to be the prayer of repentance that David wrote after his um, adultery with Bathsheba. And in verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What David is saying here, he's not saying that he was an illegitimate child. He's not saying that his father and his mother were not wedded when they, when they had him. What he is trying to say is from birth, he was a sinner. From birth, he was in the rebel camp. As far back as we can go, we were born dead in our sin. It's not society's fault. It's not the devil's fault. We're born in sin. And we have enjoyed every minute of it. Because this is the path that lets us fulfill all the desires that we have. Colossians 3, 5, and 9 will show us what all of these things are. And it's a scary list. See things like sexual immorality, passion, evil desires. Those things that we would say are, you know, the really bad, the big stuff. And on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. But he goes into other things as well. He says, but now you must put them all away. Like anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. And don't lie. All of these things are part of the flesh. And they satisfy desires. Even the anger. Because when we think about this, when we are angry at something, it's because we feel justified. And that person's hurt us. We're going to mete out justice however we see fit. And that can feel good, if we're honest. That's why we like doing it. You know, someone did a study where they could put little probes in people's heads and they could stimulate whatever emotion that they wanted to feel at the moment. And the one that was stimulated the most was a small frustration and anger. That was the one everyone kept pushing the button on. Is that we get something out of that. When we lie, we're protecting ourselves most of the time. Say, it's like, well, I don't want them to know this about me, so I'll just give them this story and hope that they don't question it. It's not just when we think about evil passions and desires, we usually reserve those for the sexual sins, but they're everywhere else too. Coveting can feel good. It's imagining what this life might be like if I had this, that, or the other thing. We're more than happy to do all of these sins. Does it sound like you and I need a rescue? 
Does it sound like we're going to extract ourselves from that thing on our, on our own? That we're going to be able to step back away from the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience? That we're going to step back from an entire crowd that's moving in one direction and has been moving for as long as humanity has existed? And you're also going to step back from all of your own passions while being dead? It's not going to happen. So we see in Psalm 51, or excuse me, Psalm 14 that we read earlier. None, none righteous. So how does there a generation of righteous people? How is it possible that Paul is able to say, and you were dead in trespasses and sins? You once walked among these people. How could there ever be a past tense? Verse 4. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's the hope. You're not extracting yourself from deadness. Dead people don't heal themselves. It's not how it works. They need a resurrection. And God's in the resurrection business. It's what he does. We saw that in Jesus. Being physically raised from the dead. And that points to our spiritual resurrection. So that we don't have to be goose-stepping behind Satan anymore but that we can be following after Christ in what he has for us today. That's what we're going to celebrate here in a few moments with the Lord's Supper. God has invited the dead to dinner. He has raised us up from this sin of following after Satan, following after the course of the world, doing whatever it is we want to do, making us alive, changing our hearts, and now following after the Spirit. It's what we see in Galatians 5.16. We're no longer following after the flesh. Living in the Spirit. How does one live in the Spirit? How do you follow after the Spirit? First thing you do is you surrender to Jesus. Jesus stands in the midst of all of these people walking past him. And when you say it's like, I am a sinner. There is something wrong with me. I am dead. That's the beginning of Christ working in you. If you're feeling that this morning, then this is the day of repentance. This is the day of salvation. Surrender to him. Follow after a new leader. He will bring you resurrection. Now, before we leave this passage here, I want to take a look at a few takeaways. There are actually encouraging takeaways on such a dark passage here in these first three verses, but I want to encourage you to think about these. The first is I want this to be a comfort for those who are struggling with sin. Had a conversation with one of my friends this past weekend. He asked the question, are you the person that tends to look more towards up the mountain about how far you have yet to go, or are you the person that tends more to look back and see where you've come? If you're the kind of person that sees all of the gap between where you are and where you should be, this is a good reminder 
that the Lord has done remarkable work. It's not something for you to take pleasure and joy in yourself. But to say, I was once dead. I wasn't sensitive to the things of God at all. And now I am. I didn't raise myself. But it means the Lord is working in me. And whatever God starts, he finishes. There are no unfinished projects on Jesus' workbench. They all come together and they are all finished. So take courage when you see how far you have to go. Yes, but the Lord's working on you. He's raised you from the dead, filling you with his spirit and bringing you further along. That's an encouragement. The second takeaway is perhaps for those who spend more time looking back at where they've come instead of seeing how far they have yet to go. And the difference that we can be is to look at all those that are still back walking after Satan and say, I'm better than them. I didn't sin like that. Verse 3 reminds us that we were all walking in this way. Maybe our sins were different, but we're all walking on the same path to destruction. We're all children of wrath. And what this should give to us is a compassion to reach out to those who are still following after Satan. They're dead. They need the gospel. That's how you were pulled off that path. It encourages us to reach out to those and hold out hope. Yes, This person is completely insensitive to the things of God. Maybe you have a family member that you have been praying for for decades. And they seem just as insensitive now as they were 20 years ago. But everybody's dead. Everybody needs resurrection. Whether they're hypocrites sitting in church or whether they are hellions running the street. They need and can possess new life from God. So be encouraged. Reach out to them and be reminded that you were once there yourself. My final takeaway from this passage today is if you are here today and are thinking, hmm, maybe I have been insensitive to the things of God for all this time. Just because you sit in a building for a couple of hours a week does not make one a Christian. Is Jesus precious to you? Is your life being shaped by what we see in this book? Is there a difference in your life because of these things that you've read and know? If not, perhaps you're still walking along with the rest of the world. But there's hope for you. This isn't, well, I guess we'll just try this New Year's resolution for the thousandth time and set about with yet more discouragement when it doesn't happen. It's surrender to Christ. And Christ will bring new life. doesn't matter how old or how young you are. We all start out dead. So if you are a child here and thinking, ah, this is adult stuff, this is grown-up stuff, This is too big for me to think about. No, it's not. Just as dead as your parents were. 
It's never too early and it's never too late. They think, oh, I've lived sin my entire life. The train has passed for me. There's nothing else I can do. I've wasted my life. That may be, but it's not too late. You can still come to Christ. You can still be resurrected. Yes, even after all these years of sin, Christ can still set you free. That's the hope. Paul was dead. He was a persecutor of Christians. He killed people that were in the church. That's dead. He even did it while wearing religious robes. Christ saved him. Christ saved me. He can save you too. So if you feel that dawning comprehension of, oh, I am dead in my sin, then I encourage you to run to Jesus. Run to him. Put your trust in him and him alone for your salvation. And he will raise you up. He will bring you new life. And then come back next week and you can see exactly how that's worked. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this gift of salvation that you have given to us. This is something that we could have never earned. Something that we could never deserve. So I ask that if there is anyone here today who is still walking among the sons of disobedience, who is still dead in their sin, I pray that they would feel the reality of this truth and that they would run to you. Not try to turn over a new leaf. Not try to fix themselves because dead people can't do that. But I pray that they would run to you and look to you for hope and for resurrection. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.